and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate, and I have to tell our listeners that I am very, very envious of Kate's current location in the south of France. Um, Oh Oh my God, Uh, the light in her room right now, which nobody can see but me, just looks so amazing. Kate's hair also looks amazing. It looks very sun-kissed, very by the beach. It was by the sea yesterday, by the pool today. Mm -hmm. A la plage, a la piscine. (laughs) I don't know if I'll ever uh, return, but this week we're speaking with Kristen Ross about the book, The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life, which is a collection of her essays from the last three decades. And it's very apropos Mm -hmm. (laughs) to um, my current travels because it's a book about France, Mm -hmm. um, about social movements in France about Henry Lefebvre, who wrote The Critique of Everyday Life, and about kind of looking at this rise of consumerism in France, Mm -hmm. the beginning of industrialization in France that came on very quick, the whole consumer culture, and also concurrent social movements that were about reclaiming public space and about working class people uniting and fighting certain currents of government and capitalism and hearkening all the way back to the Paris Commune of 1871 and also May 1968 and even Mm. looking at movements of today. Yeah, it's a fascinating sweep, the kind of history that these essays cover. Well, as you're saying, Kate, kind of all orbiting around questions of who has access to collective action, to collective public space, what are better ways to live, and how have kind of wrangling with theories around or actions and movements around finding a better way to organize human society and production is really fascinating and fascinating to think about, especially, you know, obviously we're talking about this in a French context, but I think that listeners will see so many of these insights and kind of discussions and debates relevant to, you know, not only anywhere in the country, but specifically for us in in Los Angeles, where there's a long and kind of storied history of contention over public space, over who has the right to live where and how we kind of make and form a more just and equitable city and society. Yes. And this idea of autonomous zones Mm -hmm. um, is coming up today as people reclaim unused space and take over houses for housing that is not being offered to them. It's amazing to think of the potential in Los Angeles and times when it's kind of peaked and then been squashed by the powers that be. And this book, of course, is uh, very inspiring in that regard to see that it, it could still be possible. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, should we get to it? Yeah, but you know what? Before we do, we need to plug what's going on here at LARB this month. As our listeners know, the LA Review of Books is a reader and listener supported literary nonprofit. Uh, If you join our membership drive this June, so this month, at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join, The summer membership drive has some great perks, right? So you have both a limited edition LARB hat, as well as our typical perks, including a subscription to the LARB quarterly, 
an LARB canvas tote bag. I can never get enough tote bags. A discount card for our network of partnering indie bookstores and invitations to our members-only events. So if you're interested in getting all of that, plus a hat, also for people such as myself of the balder-pated persuasion, um, particularly (laughs) useful in these summer months, you can join us this June for those and more perks at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Always need a hat. Exactly. Thank you, Eric. And now let's listen to Kristen Ross. All right, let's do it. to have Kristen Ross with us on the line today. Kristen is a translator, political philosopher, and professor emeritus of comparative literature at New York University. She's also the author of numerous books on French politics, culture, and philosophy, including The Emergence of Social Space, Rimbaud and the Paris Commune, Fast Cars, Clean Bodies, Decolonization and the Reordering of French Culture, May 68 and Its Afterlives, which I'm sure that we will talk about at least in part today, and Communal Luxury, the Political Imaginary of the Paris Commune. She joins us today to discuss her latest book, The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life, a collection of essays that explore how everyday life emerges as a vantage point for understanding and transforming our social world and experience within it. Representing three decades of Kristen's writing about the everyday, French political, social, and cultural theory, the romance and memory of the May 1968 protests, and the present predicaments both faced and created by the Macron government, the politics and poetics of everyday life invokes the work of Henry Lefebvre, Frederick Jameson, Jacques Rancière, Emile Zola, and many others to map the intersections of political transformation and cultural representation as resources for thinking opposition and liberation in the present. Thanks so much for joining us, Kristen. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to start just with the everyday as a concept. I'm very embarrassed to say that I read Michel Sarteau's book on the everyday, and I, I did not know that this was like an idea. I thought it was in reference to just everyday life in more of a common parlance. And I enjoyed that book a lot. And I know you have some issues with Sarto, and I thought that would be interesting to get in later. But for now, let's just talk about the emergence of this concept and also the historical reference for it. And then maybe also how you became interested in it. It's funny that you came to it through de Certeau, who was translated and much more popular, a kind of thinker of the everyday than the more significant thinker who, who really invented the concept, if you can talk about that that way, who discovered the quotidian, and that's Henri Lefebvre. And it's funny to think about discovering the quotidian because how can something so insignificant be discovered? You know, the drudgery, the repetitions, all of these kinds of banal, you know, repetitive acts that, by which we divide up our time. But in a sense, you know, didn't Marx do the same thing when he decided to look at something so banal as work and construct an entire theoretical edifice over around labor? And in a way, you could say Freud did the same thing with sexuality, which is, again, very ordinary, right? So 
taking something as ordinary as daily life and turning it into, I don't know if I would use the word concept exactly, because it's not pure thought. It's if you begin to notice everyday life, you're already critiquing it. And if you're critiquing it, you want to transform it. So it's already has a very political agenda. So it's not purely theoretical is what I'm trying to say. In fact, Lefebvre had, this might be an apocryphal story, but he claims that he thought of it one day when the woman he was living with walked in from shopping and she was holding a box of laundry detergent. And she said, I'll say it in French because it's too funny. She said, ceci est un excellent produit. This is an excellent product. And what struck Lefebvre was that she was speaking like an ad, but didn't really know, or, you know, it was almost unconscious that her voice had come out like a commercial. And so he began to think that this actually, it is, it's through habits of consumption. It's through habits of shopping. It's how we move around the city. It's how we, our commute to work. It's these kinds of factors, but especially around questions of consumption, because he was, we were right in the middle of the society of consumption in France in the post-war This is how multinational capital enters our lives, is through this. It's through, it's nothing abstract. It's actually, you know, seeping into our unconscious in ways that we don't even know about. This is also about the scripts of daily life, right? Like to riff off of what you were saying with the, just to make it clear for the listener, that it's like going to a grocery store involves a number of economic but also political exchanges, right? How you relate to, say, the checkout clerk, how you choose produce, how you understand where that produce has come from, if you even do understand that, how your eye is drawn and organized around different aisles, and how you interface with other shoppers. How do we move from the awareness of that to a kind of political critique? The critique is comes out of the way that Lefebvre thought about the old Marxist concept of alienation. He decided that after, especially after World War II, that the way Marx thought about alienation in the 19th century, it was purely an economic phenomenon. And Lefebvre decided that, in fact, after World War II, people... The forms of alienation in daily life had really changed and that they had to be thought about. I mean, the ways in which people were dispossessed, say, you could be dispossessed economically, but you could also be dispossessed of your dignity. You could be dispossessed of your time, of your ability to work with other people to construct a possible future. You could be dispossessed of aesthetic pleasure, of sexual pleasure. There's all sorts of ways in which alienation had become much more multifaceted than the old idea of the 19th century worker. So the question for Lefebvre was that for him, everyday life was double-edged. It was the site of enormous alienation, but it was also the place 
of imminent social creativity, of people deciding that they could change their lives, that they could live differently, that they could they could make of it a site of transformation. And as a, a thinker and an activist who was very much involved with something like May 68 in France, he knew that people make revolutions not for abstract principles, but because they want to live differently. They want to change their their daily lives. How does it get picked up, this idea of the everyday by others? Like, you know, the situation is international. I read your interview with Lefebvre in the book. It's so interesting. He talks a lot about COBRA and this movement for kind of utopian architecture coming out of Amsterdam. It goes beyond just noticing, you know, and you're saying, and the revolutionary potential is kind of harnessed by certain people who were then like making these experiments about how to move around the city differently, about the way the city could look and be. So maybe talk about some of the streams that come out of Lefebvre. Well, you know, he was very tight with the situationists until they had an enormously violent rupture and stopped speaking to each other and accused each other of plagiarism and all sorts of evil deeds. But before that happened, they had a very, very kind of productive interaction and, you know, thought through these questions together. And in a way, I, I sort of came to Lefebvre through the situationists whom I, I interviewed a long time ago. But the question of what brought them together, one of the major things that brought them together was that they were all at the time thinking very closely and originally about this event of the 19th century called the Paris Commune. So they were they were really brought together around this question of what was the commune? What is the form that a commune takes? Why is this a way of managing and living together, managing common affairs and you know, taking actual responsibility for working together to, you know, change one's mode of existence. So they came up with a number of ideas about the Paris Commune that were highly original and very different from, say, the standard Marxist interpretation of the event, which was that basically it was a failure because they didn't have a strong party leadership. <laughs> so Lefebvre and the situationists ended up saying the opposite. They ended up saying what was wonderful about it and truly productive about it was the fact that there were no leaders and that that this was a bottom, from the bottom up kind of revolution. It wasn't harnessed into some sort of party or you know, set of governing principles or anything like that. So I would say that that was one of the major streams that comes out of this wonderful meeting of Lefebvre and the Situationists in the early 60s is a major new reflection on the commune, which then in turn, you know, has had enormous repercussions in France and elsewhere all around the world right now in terms of the kinds of ecological occupations that we see in places like, well, Standing Rock or Notre Dame des Landes in France or the Sousa Valley in Italy. You know, we can go on and on. Cop City in Atlanta. I mean, these are all in some sense related to a reflection, not just a reflection and actually a decision to live differently. I'm also curious about it's kind of like 
reflecting on popular culture versus mass culture, the difference that you draw between them here and looking at, you know, there can be creativity in popular culture that some of the things that maybe we're observing on as we look at everyday life are not just how, you know, consumerism is seeping into everything, but there's also what we make in just as people, as workers, as living together. You know, it's not only, I think mass culture, popular culture, both almost have this derogatory sense in the U.S. at least. And it's looked at as kind of like what's maybe not so great about culture is like the mass culture or popular culture. So maybe talk about the difference between those terms in France. Well, in France, you know, popular culture was rooted in the the culture of workers, whether it was rural workers, you know, the paysans, the peasants of in agricultural workers in the countryside, or urban working class culture. And these were, you know, strong cultures of musical in every way. You know, this was a a kind of way of life that began to fade pretty in a pronounced way again after World War II. So up until World War II, you know, France was really a fairly conservative sort of agrarian Catholic country. And it's only after then, although some people push it back to the 30s, but I think it's really the 50s and 60s where you begin to have just this, what some would call an invasion of American mass culture, American led by these, the influx of these sort of large consumer durables like televisions and automobiles that in France happened very, very suddenly. That's the thing that Americans have a hard time realizing because our capitalist modernization took place gradually, you know, throughout the whole 20th century. But in France, they experienced it very abruptly, right, in the, you know, 50s and 60s. And suddenly everybody's habits were changing. You know, a a woman in the countryside might in just 10 years, get electricity, running water, a stove, a refrigerator, a washing machine, a sense of that the outdoors is different from the indoors, and all of these kinds of liberations and oppressions that go along with that in just a few years. That's why, again, why everyday life becomes such a topic there, or that it's palpable, it's visible, you know, you can you can see the changes very quickly. And one of those changes would be something like a move from popular culture that's rooted in a particular class to something like mass culture, which is a more American kind of form. You know, it's not as linked to, say, the actual, you know, ways of life of different classes. I want to, like, try to combine all of these incredible historical forces (laughs) to explain one other very important event. So you have, just to collate a couple of things, so you have on the one hand, this Americanization of France in terms of the post-war, you have all this like mass consumer stuff, right? And the culture that comes with it. You also have the post-war decolonization. So that's also happening. And then you also have what appears to be a kind of a series of significant social, political, and economic changes within France that, and again, as not a scholar of this area, 
but seem to kind of thread themselves together in the radical uprising of May 1968, which also changes the kind of ways that a number of the thinkers that you're talking about are interfacing with concepts like the everyday and what is actually happening in France, what the point of sociology is, what the point of philosophy is, and also their own kind of, from the academy, they're wrestling with the inside and outside of that ivory tower world. So can you talk a little bit for our listeners about what May 1968 was I know whole books have been written on it. Not easy to do in a quick soundbite. We're not asking for that. But just to kind of put together what that moment meant and how that might change our relationship to or thinking about the everyday. Well, let's see. When I wrote my book about 68, which was in the 1990s, the Vision, the only vision of 68 that was available then was that it was a sort of a joyous uprising by youth, a very poetic event, a very what the French call bon enfant, you know, like uh, nice kids, you know. What I wanted to do was take a look at what was forgotten, you know, with that description, what was left out. And what was left out was an amazing level of frontal violence with the cops, a significant number of deaths. I mean, I don't care how many in the sense that, you know, what is significant and what is, one death is significant. There was also the largest strike, workers' strike, in modern French history, a strike that affected every single level of employment, you know, from shipbuilders to grocery clerks to teachers, you know, and across the entire country, the entire country was shut down for close to a month. So that whole picture had been massively distorted essentially by former student radicals who had changed their minds over time and decided to, you know, like recast what had occurred in terms of their own political conversions. So I wrote a book that sort of shifted the picture back over to the workers. And if I were to write a book now about what 68 was, I would shift it straight out of Paris and right into the countryside. And I would look at someone like an autodidact farmer in Brittany who essentially brought farmers into the entire movement in a town like Nolte, you know, a provincial town. It wasn't just students and workers. It was students, workers, and farmers all organizing together, and the farmers were feeding the struggle. This is a, an amazing kind of level of solidarity that you didn't really see elsewhere. And again, by focusing just on Paris, you can miss it. So on your question, what was 68? It really does depend on a lot on your perspective, on what historical moment you're looking at it from. You know what I mean? Because I think the kinds of movements that we see today actually alter what we can see about 68. We can, you know, see new things about it, give new names to what it was. You know, most people would say that 68 started in the cities, and I'd agree, but 
its true political intelligence leads more to the Earth or the planet. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Kristen Ross, author of The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Martine Sims back on the line. Martine Sims is an artist and a filmmaker. She has a show up at Spruce Moggers, Los Angeles this summer called Loser Back Home. And she's here to give me a book recommendation. My recommendation is A Rock, A River, A Street by Stephanie Jemison. And I mean, Stephanie's like one of my favorite writers. She edited a book I wrote 10 plus years ago now, but this is her first novel and it follows an unnamed protagonist sort of through their day, but it's very much focused on the body, which is something I loved about it. And it has this kind of like thrum of energy it's like, it's kind of quiet and I read it in a day. It was very like soothing. I went to go see Stephanie read from this book here in LA. Yeah, it was something very quietly powerful about it. Yeah, exactly. Twinning, there's lots of stuff about twins in there. Yeah, which I love. I love twinning moments, reflections, and I also running I think that's part of it is like running has this like rhythmic, like meditative rhythm to it that the book, I think, did a good job of capturing. Is the unnamed protagonist an artist in the book or something else? Something else. They go through kind of different, they describe like one job they had working for a philosopher, but otherwise it's not so much about work, which is also nice. That sounds good for the summer when we should be thinking less about work, more about being outside. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? A Rock, A River, A Street by Stephanie Jimson. Thank you so much, Martine. Thanks. That was Martine Sims. Her new exhibition is called Loser Back Home and it's at Spruce Monitors. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kristen Ross, author of The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life. Then there's also that kind of a struggle about, I mean, this is what I loved about in one of your later essays, you speak about how Macron's government reached out to you (laughs) to help that. I mean, it's hilarious to actually think about. They reached out to you to help them think about how they could celebrate, in scare quotes, the May 1968 uprising. And you, of course, had a very, like most other historians they reached out to, had a very different understanding of what could be or should be remembered about that history. But it, it kind of prompts a larger question about the to use a vulgar phrasing, the use of the past, right? So like, how do we remember the 60s, right? So as somebody who is 40 years old now, the 60s to me in my youth meant something more retro, it's lava, right? So like the kind of things, the associations that I draw the way that I could envision freedom in like posters or films from the 60s is different than how I would look at it today. So can you talk a little bit about the wrangling that we have with control over 
narratives that aren't necessarily always fixed about history. As you said, you know, your way of even thinking about May 1968 has changed over the course of your career, even if the politics around it hasn't, you know, just like where the emphasis falls. But can you talk about how you see these moments of wrangling shaping our relationship to the 60s as a moment of radical imagination that gets taken up on both sides in the present? Well, the Macron moment was really funny. I mean, that's a good example of it because he had decided that he was going to complete, well, all French presidents since 68 have done this. Sarkozy announced that if he were elected president, he would simply eliminate every memory of 68. In other words, he would somehow just crush it. I don't know quite how he was going to do that. But Macron's tactic was much more dangerous because he wanted to just, he wanted to join it somehow. He wanted to co-opt it completely by saying that the present Macronian society was the same thing as 68 or something like that, you know, that that it had led. So when I wrote back and I said, well, what exactly are you going to celebrate? And they, they were honest. They said, we're going to celebrate the capitalist transformation of France and the end of utopias and the end of all, you know. So it was a straightforward neoliberal interpretation of 68, which exists, by the way. You know, the neoliberal interpretation has been around practically since June of 68. So that kind of, you know, fighting over the memory of a major emancipatory moment it happens regularly. And that's why when I wrote my book on 68, I thought, I'm not even going to so much try to say what it was, but I'm going to say what people were fighting about 10 years after, 20 years after, 30 years after, and to do it that way. So it's a kind of a straightforward discourse analysis. You know, when I learned about May 68 in college, I think I came to it from a place of maybe more of like art in everyday life or, you know, from the slogans and just this, this sense of spectacle and the way of kind of like living art. But then I think this thing, and maybe what I'm seeing now is like 68 was about this incredible solidarity between all these people. It reminds me of when you talk about, you know, the commune as festival. What was happening, you know, in the Paris commune was this sense of festival and maybe we could transition into that, like what communist festival means. Well, it's really about people reappropriating their time and also experimenting. As you say, experiment is a vital part of things because one of the things you're experimenting with is forms of social property that are not necessarily, you know, mine and yours, right? Lefebvre had a, had a really important idea that people, he thought that individuals and groups could not become political subjects. They could not become actors unless they appropriated a space, and he meant that both physically and socially, that they controlled and managed themselves. Now, this is a very radical idea. And, you know, he used a lot of examples. It didn't matter, you know, didn't matter if you were 
if you didn't have a lot of money, you know, I mean, he used the favelas of uh, Rio as one example, certain aspects of the way that even though they, people were very poor there, they managed to kind of appropriate a, a place and turn it into a kind of creation where once again, it's not, it's not about possessing the space. It's about creating something collectively together, which is what I think you're, you're thinking of it in terms of festival. And that's exactly right. It's these practices of appropriation that, you know, we certainly saw at Zuccotti Park in New York or, you know, the movement of the squares in 2011 all over the world. It was quite similar. There's a definitely an existential dimension of people actually living differently and experimenting with a kind of concrete anti-capitalist offensive in the form of organizing and taking responsibility for one's daily life together. And, you know, and in that case, the state recedes, you know, the state, you're sort of sidestepping the state. Let's put it that way. You're not frontally attacking it. You're just ignoring it. I think a, a very good example of that, and this comes back to 68 in the United States, would be what, you know, the Black Panther Party did in cities like Oakland and Chicago and Detroit when they decided that their neighborhoods had value and that they were worth defending and that they were they were going to do that themselves. And then they set about organizing, they founded bakeries, they decided they would make sure their kids had breakfasts at school, you know. So they essentially turned their neighborhoods into working communes. And that may actually look like a lot of work rather than a festival, but it's non-alienated labor. And once you have non-alienated labor, you're on the road to a festival. You're in it. <laughs> I'm curious how that, because yes, the commune form is this utopian social imag- imaginary, not necessarily actuality, though it, it has its moments, right? I don't think it's utopian. It's much more pragmatic. I guess I'm taking the utopian gloss from its status as a social arrangement that gets around the damaging collectivities that we might associate with the nation state, global capitalism, other loops of restriction, oppression, and limitation. But I'm wondering like how the Black Panther Party example is is actually a very informative one because it's a contemporary example, right? Because we're thinking about the Paris Commune from the you know late 19th century. So what the Black Panther Party did with the the lunch programs and all of that, thinking of that as a working commune is like turning over in my head a lot as we speak, which I think is is great. Because as I was reading towards the end of your book, when you're talking about the commune form as a kind of, if not ideal, an available state for imagining living differently, I'm wondering how that becomes accessible in a present where we are let's say, increasingly atomized by the effects of capital and its social articulation in terms of representation, but also in a present that feels increasingly virtual, right? So for example, we are now speaking to you not in person, not in a real place, but rather through a virtual conference call. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how just technological and capital transformations 
in the present, like how the commune form might emerge differently or what the potential is for the commune form to serve in in a present under these conditions? When I went down to the ZAD at Notre Dame des Landes, I don't know if your listeners know what that would be. Maybe you could explain it a little bit. This was the longest lasting social movement in post-war France. And it was farmers and others who started an occupation to prevent the building of an international airport in farmland in southwestern France. And I'll just jump ahead. They won. It took them 25 years, (laughs) but they won. The airport will not be built. But in along the way, so this was an amazing kind of a group of people, old farmers, militant anarchists, black bloc, elected officials, lesbian separatists. You know, I mean, you could not find a more varied social group than these people who were living together and working together to make sure that the airport not be built. All right. So you could say, well, they were not afraid of looking like they were trying to live in the 19th century. In other words, yeah, they had some internet, you know, but it was pretty sketchy. And I would say that I was there when the finally, after 25 years, it was announced the Minister of the Interior announced that the airport would not be built. And all they had was like one bad laptop that was floating in and out of work. You know, we were a hundred people crowded in this room trying to look at this tiny laptop. You know, <laughs> So anyway, I don't believe that any of this kind of technological stuff is a necessary factor for what we need to do to build a post-productionist world. Personally, that's my opinion. I think it gets in the way. Well, I was going to say, you know, when I was, I can't remember exactly where this was, but some discussion about the Situationists and their idea of like connecting different neighborhoods where I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, this could have been in some people's idea, this was what the internet was going to be. I mean, instead of walkie talkies, it would be message boards. You know, it's like, but it's completely uh, become, you know, something else, it seems. But it, it doesn't, I don't think it's the technology that is the problem, exactly. Right. No, I think you're right. I mean, as far as the social atomization that you mentioned earlier, I there again, I would point to this, the kind of political intelligence that I saw in an occupation like that, where they had to figure out a way to create solidarity across an amazing level of diversity. And that, I think, is their biggest success. And it's something that I think we would have much more trouble maybe in the United States doing because, you know, they, in France, the sort of identitarian kinds of concerns that we have in the U.S. are not as hegemonic. So it's, I think, probably just culturally a little easier for them to realize that you have to form these working alliances. And often you have to work with people who are ideologically not at all, you know, speaking your same language or, and this was what they managed to do. And if, and I think if you have a sense of the shared enemy that's strong enough 
And I think the ecological conditions of the destruction of the environment are now at such a peak that I think we can begin to work towards that much more fruitfully. Then you do become capable of maintaining these kinds of alliances and even, you know, extending them beyond, say, the actual physical emplacement of the occupation. So in the case of the Zod, you know, they they had an absolutely fluid border, you know, that people were in and out all the time. There were people, ideas, you know, people from Chiapas coming, you know, it was it was quite amazing the the flow of people and ideas across something that was really in the shape of, or in the scale, let's say the scale of a commune. So, you know, they had support networks that had been, and, and here I, you know, yes, I mean, the internet would play a role in that with, you know, extending out to the various kinds of support groups that existed in other cities in France, but those support groups were meeting physically together. You know, I mean, I don't think you, I really don't think you can get around that. You have to have physical contact. You have to have, because you're building something and you're building something tangibly. You're actually, it's not enough just to prevent the destruction or interrupt the destruction of these projects. You also have to kind of build something that will take its place. I wanted to ask about insurrection or insurrectionary cities, but more of like the right-wing fascist variety. Because I couldn't help but think of like that community in Oregon that took over the state lands in Oregon as I was reading this, even like the Capitol, you know, what happened on the Capitol, like did Lefebvre account for these kind of ruptures as well? <laughs> oh, so you're going back to things like Ruby Ridge, and, you know, that whole genealogy of sort of fascist occupations or, yeah, well, those are a reality in, in the U.S. especially, but not just in the U.S., but of course, that's always the danger. There's always the danger that in these self-enclosed cells, you can actually amplify certain forms of misogyny, say, or, you know, like the the cult of the leader. <laughs> you know, these, these are the right-wing variety of these things are truly horrible. But even like a less extreme version of that is always a danger. You know, you constantly, that's why these, I stand in a kind of admiration for the way that people fought against those kinds of tendencies, which arise everywhere. You know, the, at the Zod, they had to figure out how to police themselves because the police wouldn't go into the zone and they didn't want the police in the zone. So they have invented this method of pulling the names of 12 people's names out of a hat every month. And those 12 people would be something like a council where anyone who had any kind of trouble or antagonism or was acting antisocial or any of these kinds of things would meet with these people. They had no power but they would listen and they would try to devise a solution to the problem. Nine out of the 10 problems involved dogs. I mean, you would not believe how dogs became symptomatic of 
all of the tensions at the Zod, you know, why can't my dog run free? Why? You know, here I am living in this absolutely liberated zone and my dog is not allowed to run free. That feels very American, actually. <laughs> I feel like I could see that in like in a, in a homeowners association here in Los Angeles. <laughs> they might be communards, but... <laughs> <laughs> but... But for the dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not perfect over at the Zod. Well, maybe on that note, we will say thank you so much, Kristen, for speaking with us. Thank you. That was Kristen Ross. Her new book is called The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.